15. Romans chapter 15. I have a tickle in my throat, so I might need more of this stuff. So one of you guys got to get ready. Romans chapter 15. Last week we started preaching on verse 13, which is the start of the context now. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced. Let's get this so I can... uh, I am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. We found out last week that what is this talking about, full of goodness and full of knowledge? Well, I think it's very clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. There's not a one person that that, uh, in this time of the church age that is not baptized in and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. We, the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer. Next week, starting on Friday, I believe, the 17th and 18th, Friday and Saturday, down in Crosby, Justin Peters. How many know Justin Peters? How many went back and looked at Justin Peters? All right, one of you. Okay. <laughs> Justin Peters is going to give a, a, a weekend seminar on what that actually looks like, on the Holy Spirit's work in our lives today. And it's, it's, it's such an important, down in Crosby. So if, make yourself available to that, that great opportunity to hear some great preaching on that. The health and welfare gospel is not the biblical gospel. Amen? And that's so important we understand that. So we are filled, we're not filled. By the way, there is a difference between filling and baptized in, Okay. The filling of the Holy Spirit is we realize more of Him when we relinquish more of us. Does that make sense? When we get out of our way, God can control us even more. Not that we get more of the Holy Spirit. We have all of Him. So we dealt with that last week and how that God has gifted all Christians with the down payment according to Ephesians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit, we praise the Lord for that. He's also gifted us not only with the Holy Spirit, but with the Word of God. Amen? How could we live without the Word today? Praise the Lord for the Word of God. And, we, and Paul here was telling, you've been filled with all knowledge. He's telling the church at Rome, you have been given the text of the Word. Not only do you have all the whole Old Testament, but you also have some of these other books that have recently been written by the apostles. Amen? You have the Word, and by the way, there is no better time in the world history as far as knowledge is concerned. The wealth of information that is out there and the tools that are used to study the Word of God is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. You can take one word now and search through the whole Scripture, and it takes like five seconds. Imagine what that was like back then. I don't know if you understand this, but... Not everybody had the Word of God in their hand. How many have the Word of God in your hands right now? I pray that you do. Um, Like, I'm not like Lutzer. This is my Bible. (laughs) It's all on this so I can read it and things. But Lutzer's like, no, no, a real Bible. And it shows the the calfskin covered, you know. But regardless, it wasn't like that back then. Literally, you had to have a horse and a trailer to bring and to have the book of Isaiah. It it just didn't happen as we think today. And yet, they had, at at bare minimum, parts of the Word of God, and Paul was admonishing them that, listen, you have all that you need to encourage one another, to help one another, to admonish one another. And that's the same thing today, amen? We have all that we need. And to be honest, I think we have more. Certainly more than they had. 
And then he goes on and says, but I have written very boldly. This is last week's sermon. We're just re rehashing to get to verse 16 where we left off. But I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. Paul was in their face, boldly proclaiming, daring to proclaim these truths to them. And how many remember the example of Nimrod, how he boldly... Anybody go and study after last week's sermon, go and study about Nimrod? Nimrod is tied to the Tower of Babel. Did anybody know what happened at the Tower of Babel? Why did God destroy and, 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 and throw everybody away uh, in the, at the Tower of Babel? Why is that? Okay, they disobeyed him. How? Here's what's cool. What I read last week, Nimrod's doing this to God. How dare you? And just so you know, God, this is what he's saying. This is his boldness. We are going to build a building that will go above your flood that you're going to bring next time, and we won't be destroyed like you think you can do this. That's his boldness against God. Now, that's misplaced boldness at bare minimum, right? But Paul here is saying, I have that same boldness for the Lord and for you. I, I, I'm bold enough to speak to you these truths. How many are tired of the pussyfooting around? The milk toast preaching and teaching. I'm reading a book right now. Matter of fact, can you raise that book? This is. So there's a new book. I, I, I don't know how new it is, but Al Mohler, can you give it, show me the face of it? Thank you. The Gathering Storm by Al Mohler. How many know who Al Mohler is? Okay, he does a fantastic job. 2020, okay, two years ago, right before the real storm, right? <laughs> so in 2020, he wrote this, <clears throat> The Gathering Storm, and here's the, here's the reality of it. The Gathering Storm is about the church's mis... Um, it's misgivings, it's theology isn't important anymore. It's entertainment, it's bringing in the world, but we aren't teaching the world what true Christianity is. How many understand that? And because of all that, this world is going to hell. One of the authors said hell in a handbasket. How many understand that? Why is it it's good? Well, if Christians don't know theology, if they don't know the Word, if they don't know how to minister to people in their workplaces, then how in the world do you expect the world to impact, the Word to impact the world, right? There, we have to have ambassadors out there, and the problem is there are no longer ambassadors in general because the church has failed to preach the very words that are important. It's a fantastic book. It's, oh, it's... I can't get enough. I can't wait. My wife's going to read it to me as we drive, actually, all the way down to Minneapolis. But I'm so excited. It's so good. That book is boldly proclaiming to the church, you've lost it. Get right. Paul is doing the same thing here. He's doing the exact same thing. Now, how is Paul doing that? This is where we left off. We'll start this morning. The Bible then says to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The catch word, let me get to my notes where I left off, I'm sorry. Paul calls himself so that I would be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. How was Paul a minister to the Gentiles? How did that happen? Did Paul just one day wake up and say, you know, and this is what happened in the history of Christianity. I, I think today, I, I think for my life, I, I really don't want to work with my hands. I, I, I don't want to work long hours, and so I'm going to just become a preacher because I can set my own time, I can get paid for it, and I can just relax through life. Literally, that's how they acted back in Christian history. I'm not kidding. Paul, was that what he's called to be a minister? 
Was he called with that motivation? Not at all. How was Paul called to be a minister? Somebody whacked him off a horse. Amen. Threw him on the ground. He was called to be a Christian first and foremost. Amen. At the road to Damascus. Then God took him out in the desert and he went through desert seminary for years. Two to three years, right? God called each and every one of us as a Christian. If you are called as a Christian, say amen, please. He called you to be a Christian. He's also called you to be a minister in a certain aspect of life. You have not only the call of Christianity, which is so important, but you also have a second call, and that call is a call to vocation. That call to vocation is so that you will impact all those around you for the Lord, integrating your faith into where you spend most of your time. How many understand that? He, Paul, was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus, and you can go through multiple books that he has written in his epistles, right? The letters. What does it say? Paul called to be an apostle. So he knows without a shadow of a doubt, he's been called by God to minister. And the ministering that he has been called to is proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. That's his ministry. By the way, he wasn't called to be a shepherd, a pastor, an elder. It's not talked about. Now, Timothy was Titus was, and there are multiple others that were, but he was called to be a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. That's different. How many get that? Matter of fact, we'll find out later as you read along that he was so ministering so much, he didn't have time to go back to the churches he planted. He was, in essence, a church planter, not necessarily a pastor. Past, listen, not everybody's called to be a pastor. Amen. That doesn't mean it's, it's a, that's not a secondary Christian life. It's not a less, anybody that's not a pastor is less spiritually or whatever. That's ridiculous. That is heresy and it's wrong in all of its aspects. We are called a certain thing. And here, Paul was called to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest. Paul then expressed that his ministry is as a priest. Does that mean he was the first Christian priest? How many understand that question? How many think that question is pretty important with today's Christianity? When you include Catholicism and all, all other things that are out there. Listen, folks, there are no longer human priests that we need to go to. There's no booths we need to go to. Every single believer is a priest. We'll get to that in just a second. Paul was not, this is very interesting. If you were to take this literally, as some people do, ministering as a priest. Oh, so Paul was the next priest. And what does that priest look like? Well, he offered the Gentiles. How does that work? So this isn't a literal thing. This is like a priest. That's the idea. This is extremely important. If Paul would have announced that he was in the line of the priestly order, the Catholics would have it right. But he emphatically does not do that. He says that this ministering to the Gentiles is like or similar to a priest that is doing two things. What is a priest to do? The duties of a priest. Ministering to the people. Offering sacrifices to the Lord. Those two things are true. That's the duties of a priest. Before explaining what these two responsibilities are and how they are like a priest, we need to learn what Scripture says regarding a priest. What is a priest today? Who are the priests? First of all, were the Levites the priests of Israel? Absolutely. And you go through the whole Old Testament, you'll see how they, they offered sacrifices of uh, so many things, so many different sacrifices. But that's not what we're talking about. What they did is important so we can see. And by the way, this is really cool. How many have ever, uh, how many remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it says, 
And God made man to cultivate and keep the garden. I think it's Genesis 3.15. I think that's the verse, okay? 2.15, thanks. Cultivate and keep the garden. What does he mean by that? Here's the reality. That term, cultivate and keep, in, within those two terms, there's the term abad. It's, it's the Hebrew word abad. Do you know where else we find the term abad? We find it as priestly duties in Leviticus. Same exact words. In other words, there's actually one commentator. His name is Salehammer. He's a Jewish commentator. He says, listen, guys, we got to relook at this. Everybody thinks that man was a farmer before he was thrown out of the garden. Well, there may be truth to that. He certainly was a worker. Okay, that, that we, we got. But those words are intricately tied with the term worship. Matter of fact, it's translated worship in the book of, I think it's, it's, it's Leviticus, and I think there's one other one, but I know Leviticus it is. That's how it's translated. Instead of cultivate, it translates worship. The reality is, God has called all of us to be workers and worshipers for God. Serving God. How do we worship God? We serve Him. We work for Him. Amen. So we find Leviticus, the Levites were the priests that are mentioned in the, in the, in the Bible in a positive sense during the, new, the peoples of God, the, the Jewish life, the Israel country and peoples. But in the New Testament, we find something different than the Levitical priesthood. In the New Testament, we find Jesus Christ himself is our high priest. Look what the text says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made. I'm sorry, there's a one in there. I don't know how to do this, but if anybody knows, I, I copy and paste from Lagos when it's scripture, and it constantly misspells words and adds words. I have no idea why. I try to correct them. I don't get them all right. I apologize. Therefore, he had to become like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful what? Merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Make a propitiation. Jesus Christ did that. What was the propitiation? His death. He made an offering. Once for all offering. Not only did it, he came to the aid. That's what priests do. Amen. That's what he did, no, mo, most definitely. A holy... <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 is another passage that deals with this. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, and high priest of our confession. So who are the priests? We find that the Leviticus priesthood... By the way, when did the Leviticus... Levitical priesthood end. This one's really easy. In order to have a Levitical priesthood, you have to have a temple. What happened? AD 70, right? There is no more temple. It was shut down. And there's so many ramifications of that. Jesus Christ came in 30 33 AD is approximately when he died. One of those two dates depends on which calendar you're looking at. But one of those dates, 40 years later, there was no temple. It was gone. There was, it's as if, as a matter of fact, remember the death of Jesus Christ? What happened at the death of Jesus Christ? He was the offering, the epitome. All of the Old Testament was pointing to that one event of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. What happened at that day? To the temple. Remember, the ground shook, the dark, the, 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 uh, the, the sky became black, and what happened to the temple? Anybody remember? The veil was ripped in two. 
It was wide open. Talk about scrambling priests at that moment. <laughs> Man, we got to get this thing shut up. No, 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 you don't get it. Christ has fulfilled all of those symbols pointing to him. Amen. And there, it was ripped in two. They didn't get it because they kept on doing their priestly duties and God, okay, fine, boom, done. They have no choice. Do you know that today they are ramping up ways in order to be able to reclaim and have the Levitical priesthood back in place? Matter of fact, today we've, we've seen this on our, uh, one of our Sunday school classes. You can walk on the Temple Mount. They are actually letting guided tours on the Temple Mount. And Jewish people get in those, those, <clears throat> those guided groups and they stand as close to the Holy of Holies they think it is and they say this, this is as close to God as we can ever be. And they keep praying because they don't understand what Christ has done. They need Christ. Christ is our high priest. But there's also another truth. Christians. Do you know Christians are priests? All Christians are. It's called the priesthood of what? The priesthood of the believer. We find that in Scripture also. By the way, another text was very important. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Who is that? If there is anybody else that we're confessing our sins to on this earth, we are actually totally disobeying that text. Right? There is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other priest. They're done. They're done. Christ is our high priest. Secondly, Christians are. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a what? Holy priesthood to be offered up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This, I believe, is exactly what Paul's talking about. Offering up spiritual sacrifices, not actual ones. Praise God, Paul wasn't offering actual sacrifices of the Gentiles. Right? These are spiritual aspects here. Spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God. What does it say? A little bit farther down that same exact text. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. By the way, there are two different texts that talk about this priesthood. Both <clears throat> Jewish and the church are royal priesthoods. Both texts deal with this. Also in Hebrews we find it. Your chosen royce, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you will proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. The very reason you are here is to integrate your faith into your life. What does that look like? It's not about us, it's about everybody else. By the way, if it's all about us, then what Josh read this morning in 2 Corinthians is mind-blowing. How many of us would give up the first shipwreck, let alone the other two? The first beating, I've had enough, I've had it, I'm done. We've become way too soft in our faith. Under the new covenant, Jesus Christ is our perfect and eternal high priest. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 3.1. There's no longer a human earthly institution of priesthoods as under the old covenant. There is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. All believers are priests. We just saw that in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. There are more. He has made us, Revelation chapter 1, verse, a kingdom of priests to God and, and the Father. Those who have put Revelation chapter 20. Anybody remember what Revelation chapter 20 is? We've been through that one multiple times. Remember, Revelation chapter 20 is where we find the millennial kingdom, literal. Where Satan is, is bound for what? Anybody? I hear, I heard it, I heard it. A thousand years, seven times in three verses. 
Satan is bound for a thousand years. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when Satan cannot walk around seeking whom he may devour in this world? Can you imagine the joy that will bring? Now, unfortunately, we're still sinners. The world is still sinners. But praise God, at least that will be put aside. The entire church is a priesthood of believers. We do not have to go through a human mediator to reach God. He's our own Heavenly Father with whom we are able to have direct fellowship and communion. And we engage in priestly roles by bringing others into the presence of God. By the way, that's why in a sense, do you remember the sweet savor? God relishes the sweet savor of offering sacrifice. What's that talking about? Literally, it's talking about the priesthood and back during the Levitical times, but it's spiritually talking about new people coming to know the Lord. That's a sweet savor. Paul was minister that served like a priest. And this verse is fantastic. Paul uses a Greek term, minister. And then helped explain the term by using the same terms as priest to explain what he was talking about. Minister was a general Greek term used of public officials that were to serve people. By the way, our government isn't for us to follow them. They're for us to, they are to serve us. Amen. In this type of government that we have here in America, at least. Paul using the government officials, that's what it was used for, who are, whether they realize it or not, they are servants of God. Matter of fact, he doesn't he say that in, in uh, Romans chapter 13? Obey the government because they're what? Servants of God. They serve God just like we serve God. Now, you say, well, they're not Christian. Oh, I agree with that. <laughs> but they're still called by God. There's a, and here's the reality. How many have ever heard of common grace? Common grace means the water falls on the unsaved as well as the saved, right? That's talked about specifically. There also is an aspect that common grace is God calls everyone to something. Let me ask you, did Paul or did God use Pharaoh in his vocation to serve his agenda? Absolutely. And you can go unsaved after unsaved after unsaved. You will see how God used them. God just doesn't let everybody do willy-nilly. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And it is absolutely perfectly sovereign in everything he does. Amen? So uh, in, in chapter 13, verse 16, talks about this rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. The same word is used in a plethora of verses, and it's usually translated different words. Sometimes it's priestly service. Zechariah, Luke chapter 1, deals with that. Um, <clears throat> the, the term is also used as a ministry in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 17. It's talked about as ministering angels, serving others in Hebrews. And as the eternal high priest in Hebrews chapter 8. As Paul ministered figuratively as a priest, the gospel of God to the Gentiles... He did so in order that his offering of believing Gentiles to God, as it were, might become acceptable to God. How? By the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The sanctification of the Holy Spirit. In faithful fulfillment of his unique apostolic calling, Paul supremely offered to God the magnitude, the multitude of Gentiles who by virtue of the Holy Spirit, now they were acceptable to God. It says right there in the text, to be a minister of Christ, ministering just like a priest does, by sharing the word of God, by offering of the Gentiles, and they become acceptable, those that offering does, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The text says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, I hope I'm not getting a hold of myself, but for our gospel did not come to you in word only. This is very interesting because this should 
remind us of what the text just talked about before in verse 13 and 14. For we did not come, the gospel did not come to you in word only, although it came in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. How many understand that? Full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, verses 17 and 18, I have found reason for boasting. Hold it now. How is Paul going to be a guy of boasting when he just said the whole thing, Romans chapter 12, every believer must be humble, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to. Amen? So how is that true? How is he boasting? He's going to boast in the things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Very clearly, Paul is saying, listen, I'm going to boast, but I'm going to boast in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a familiar and newer song that is, actually it's not new anymore, that we're going to play right now and sing together because that's what song is all about. <clears throat> Are you ready? In the back? We're going to sing this song halfway through the service. Isn't that third verse exactly what this text is trying to say? I'm going to boast, but that's not boasting in my giftedness. It's not boasting in my works. It's not boasting in what I know. I'm totally boasting in Christ's work and deeds, who He is. Amen. What a powerful text. That's what this verse is talking about. His word, Paul affirms that he, was, he, he has a reason to boast, but that boasting is only in the things of God. It's not human strength. The therefore signals that his boast is in what God has done on his behalf. Praise God for what he's done on me, my life. How many of you remember being the last one picked in a game? That was me. I was short. Basketball. Ugh. You know what? There is nothing outside as God's purview of how He designed you. Nothing. And He has designed, called, gifted, and given you everything you have to be able to boast in Christ. Not in yourself. Not in yourself. The therefore that's in the first part of this text uh, signals that this boast is in what God has done on his behalf. For it is God who commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It is God who ordained that this offering of the Gentiles would be pleasing in his sight. It was the sanctification by the Holy Spirit that made it pleasing. He dares to boast only to those things that Christ has accomplished through him. The spotlight is not on Paul himself, but it's on God who works through Paul. I was going through Facebook this morning to see if any churches were canceled. Not that we wanted to cancel it, we just didn't know what to do exactly. And I came across um, a famous guy within fundamentalism. I'll just put it that way. That just recently passed away. And the heading was, how do you um, celebrate the life of such a great man? How many understand that? I, I don't think that's right. How do you celebrate a man that was used of God greatly? Would maybe a better term. How many understand that? Listen, there's no great men. There's only a great God. And he uses... Matter of fact, if you would talk to John MacArthur, that's exactly what he would tell you. He's most, one of the most humble men I've heard speak. It's not that I'm great, it's that God's great. And he uses this depraved vessel to accomplish his work. 
That's exactly what Paul's trying to say. It was Christ's accomplishment that resulted in the salvation of the Gentiles. The text says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things that pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. By the way, did Paul have a reason to boast within himself because what he had accomplished in his life? Oh my goodness. He was Pharisee of Pharisees. They were the most popular people in Judaism. They were the people that, that all of Judaism would look up to. And he was the top guy. If anybody had a, way, a reason to boast in his physical and his mind, it was Paul. He said, forget that. I'm a nobody. There's a song out there by Casting Crowns. It's a fantastic song. The truth is, I'm just a nobody talking about somebody. Amen? What a great truth. It's exactly what we are. So, God used me, and I tell you what, remember Paul says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. What was he talking about? He was talking about how God saved all these Gentiles and how they're continuing to grow in the Lord. And it's, thank you, Lord, for using me. Praise God for that. And guess what? Every single one of you, all of us, should be able to praise God for how he has used us to minister to others. Because that's what God called us to do. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. By word and deed. What does that mean? Now, was Paul just another Billy Graham? Was Paul just another some type evangelist that would get out there and preach the word? Praise the Lord for those men. But Paul was more than that. In this text... By the way, does anybody remember any deeds apart from the word that he preached? Billy Graham preached the word of God and many people were saved by that ministry. Amen? So I'm not disparaging that whatsoever. But I will tell you this. Paul not only preached the word, he lived the word. We find in the text over and over and over and over again, I work day and night feverishly to be able to minister to you. It wasn't just, we'll get into this in two weeks, <laughs> but it wasn't just the spiritual aspect of all this knowledge, it was his active life. In other words, how many of you, are, how many, how many of you believe that we are doing, uh, uh, one of the responsibilities of being a Christian is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? What a day to talk about that. <laughs> With all the snow. But that's true, right? I, I, I praise the Lord for that. i got to share this with you. So this morning at about 8.30, I got a call. Hey, are you guys open? Because I can't make it to where we usually worship. And we'd like to worship somewhere. And praise the Lord they got here. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. <sighs> Paul's life wasn't just speaking it was living his faith wasn't just splattered on words his faith was splattered all over what he did the text is telling us it's not only the word but the deed and i tell you what did he make mistakes did he blow it sometimes well we know he did because of the doo-doo passage right the things I know I should do, I don't do. And the things I know I shouldn't do, I do do. The reality is, even though he was a preacher of God, he was a depraved person, saved by the blood of Christ. Absolutely one of his children, but there were times in his life he blew it. And I can get that, I get that. Because there's not a one person in here that doesn't blow it. God still used Paul despite that. Why? We need to live by grace, not by our own strength. And too many times we live by our own strength. 
If we do, I will guarantee you, we will fail. It's not if, it's absolutely when. We will fail. Now, he says, resulting in, Christ's work in me resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles. How did that happen? By Through the word and the deed, how it transformed my life. Here, Paul simply describes it, the salvation of the, of the Gentiles as obedience. Since here's the reason why. True faith, according to James, works. It's not works that get us to heaven. It's faith, but true faith works. True faith works. That's the idea here. His faith was real. Why? Because when, even when he was making tents with Aquila and Priscilla, they were working. How do you, do you think things went bad? On a construction site in the middle of Corinth, when he's working day and night. Do you think things, in Thessalonica, do you think things went bad? Hey, you forgot a loop. There's a fray in the in the the cloth or whatever. Obedience of faith, that's what he was excited about, to see people come to know the Lord because how God is using him and man, that just goes right to the heart of the issue. Is there is a young man and an elder man that have been using my shop south of town as a discipleship area that they could both meet at one's in Jacobson and one's in Deer River and they meet here in order to disciple over and over again it's just the smiles on his face watching that young man grow in his faith that's true joy that is what it's all about here Paul simply describes it as obedience that's what the terms hears and and the idea here the work indeed is work. Or, or, the word indeed is word and work. That's what he's talking about. His labor, physical, his deeds. The work performed by Paul was in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The dynamic of the Spirit is the means by which Paul achieved all that he did in every area. His speech, his actions, and then we'll find out a little bit later. His signs and wonders. Did Paul have signs and wonders where he went? Does that mean we should have signs and wonders today? The reality is they did not have the whole scripture. The signs and wonders were to authenticate his, the reality that this man was being used of God. Now we have the Bible. Amen. So those signs and wonders, those miracles, attested to the truth of the gospel that was proclaimed. This is clear in the present text. For the signs and wonders are designed to bring about the obedience to the Gentiles. In both the letters to the church at Corinth, Paul admonishes the immature and proud believers, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Hey, would you knock it off with this arrogance? The only reason you're here is by God's grace. The only reason you woke up this morning was by God's grace. The only reason you got to go through nine inches of snow was by God's grace. The only reason you can talk with one another about spiritual things is, and, and, and things of life where you can integrate your faith is because of God's grace. You, there is nothing outside His grace. We have no right to take credit for any spiritual effect we have had. It wasn't the great sermon. Or I, I, I spoke it eloquently and there it is. It's not about me, it's not about us, it's about Him. In every, we have every right to boast in what God has done, not in what we have done. From what we find in the New Testament, Paul would seem to have had more reason to boast than any other apostles, including Peter and John. He was used by God to reveal more of the New Testament than any other human writer. True. The greater part of Acts focuses on who? Paul and his ministry. But Paul discounted his own merits. Both before and after his salvation, he referred to his eminent religious life before he was converted as rubbish 
said that's it was all nonsense. He wrote to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, and I will tell you, a murderer. Do you think he was thankful for the grace of the Lord? Do you think that impacted his life? Oh, wow. He considered himself still to be the foremost of all what? I'm the greatest of sinners. Not that he flaunted that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the doo-doo passage. But he was discouraged with himself. And by the way, we cannot be discouraged that we're not sinless. How many understand that? There's only one group in the world that believes they can become to sinless perfection and they're wrong. We will not be perfect on this earth while we're on this earth. But someday we will. With glorified bodies, be with Christ face to face. Then there will be no sin. Amen? Paul did not boast in anything he had done. It was only in Christ. And there are multiple passages we can go there, but we are running out of time. <clears throat> Matter of fact, I have about four pages of the boasting. So, <clears throat> he doesn't boast in anything, but through me resulting in the obedience, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles. And then he goes in verses 19 and 20 and deals with that. In the power of signs and wonders, this, we already talked about this a little bit, there were signs and wonders that accompanied Paul that gave the text the authority. They understood then, oh, this is real. Signs and wonders in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Eleusarum, I am fully, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. What is this talking about? What is this talking about, about fully preaching the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem to Elysium? And why was he talking it this way? In the power of signs and wonders, he says, in the power of the Spirit. So in other words, the Spirit, God used Paul, and with the Holy Spirit, Signs and wonders were accomplished in all these, in these cities to authenticate the ministry of the word that he was about to preach. That's exactly what took place. Now, Paul says in verse 19, he, gives, he, he, he talks about this result. What was the result? That from, I have fully preached. What does that mean, fully preached? He has some authors saying, I, I, I believe this is great. He has fulfilled the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem to Elysium. What is startling about the text here is that Romans, in, in Romans is that he says it's fully gospelized. How is it fully gospelized? Now, how many know where this area is, Elysium? Now, this is very hard. There's a lot of people who... Uh, read this differently, the term Elysium. But let's just look at it for a second. <clears throat> so, let me, okay, here we go. Wrong color again. Although, for some of you, going from the sides is better color. I don't know what to do. I'm doing my best. Uh, I've, he I've heard, can you see that? That's, where is that? That's Romania, Yugoslavia area. That's what we understand it as. How many get this? Paul is saying, I have preached from this area all the way down to this area. Why would he say that? Which is Jerusalem, right? He said, from Jerusalem to Yugoslavia. We'll just use that term right now. That whole area was gospelized. Well, we know, remember, basically the three the three missionary journeys that Paul took were all here, right? It started here in Antioch. 
whoops, right up here, on the north side of Israel. But then he went in both ways. He went in here and then traveled all over. Then he went this way into uh, Crete and then back over. And then we, he went over here and the, the Greek, Grecian Isles. He was eventually over here to Sicily and then into Rome. All this area was being gospelized by the preaching of the word from Paul. True? Yes. Not only, and here's the deal. Paul was arrested in Caesarea Philippi and then taken by boat at the expense of Rome to go on a fourth missionary journey. <laughs> because that's really what happened. They relied on him as the preacher of the word. But this is very interesting. I, I don't understand why he could say fully though. But we will find texts, and I don't know if I have this on the text. I don't think I do. But you will read that, what was Paul's goal? When he was in, 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 in Rome, in jail, writing, he said, I want to go to one last place that he did not go to as far as we know. Some people believe he did go to it. But his, his goal, his desire was go to Spain. So, Spain, by the way, is way over here. Do you see a pattern here? Are there people that do not know the Lord in Africa? Paul didn't go there as far as we know. He did go there just for a quick, because the ship blew off and came back. That was the only time. That was accident, which we know that never happens, right? Did, did Paul ever go to Iraq, Babylonia, Iran, India? As far as we know, Damascus was as far, and, and Antioch was as far west. I'm trying to think if that's west or east. As far out to the desert as it goes, right? Why did he go there? And how many have that? I had that question. You know, I, I focus on some weird things once in a while. Okay. Say, Pastor, you do that more often than you think. But why did he do that? And I really was wondering why he did that. And then I read a guy that talked, his name was uh, uh, James Scott, in 1995 wrote a dissertation on what does it mean to be a Gentile? His thesis was that the Old Testament, and I obviously, therefore, those who taught the Old Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, all those, that group of people, they believed the Gentiles was the one of Noah's sons. Who was that? How many were there? Three. Shem, who is he? His descendants, out of his descendants came the Jewish people, Right? Who's the next one? Ham. What happened to Ham? God put a mark on him. He was the youngest. And what was the... Okay, now what would that mark was is a huge another issue. But <clears throat> he saw his father, right? In a bad state. And so he was, cur he was cursed in essence. That's where we get the Africans... Right and the the um, uh, Saudi Arabia that area all with Ham and Shem. Ham and Shem definitely live and populated to the, uh, my this way and all down here. Japheth and there's no question about it filled up all this area. Paul is saying, in essence, if that's what, that makes sense if that's what he's saying. I can't tell you dogmatically that's it. Because I always understand that Ham, some of Shem's descendants, and all of Japheth were called Gentiles. Whatever wasn't a Jew. But, I'm not an Old Testament guy. I didn't live back then. Right? <laughs> But according to this paper, this dissertation, that's how they thought. I can't agree with that or disagree with it, but it makes sense to the text if that's true. If Paul was called by God to be the Gentile, to be the gospelizer of the Gentiles, then where was he gonna go? 
to up exactly from the, the, from what they knew of the world from Spain over here to Asia Minor, and that whole area was the, the area of the Gentiles. That's why he could say, I've fully preached. Now, did he fully preach in every town to the Gentiles in that area? Absolutely not. But we know if we read farther on, as we will right now, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. So there were other people preaching the gospel in that area. And he didn't go to those towns. See that? So the, the gospel was being written all over, if you will, in this area. But as is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. In other words, I'm out there going from town to town, giving the gospel, praising the Lord, telling you who Jesus is, and I've been doing that so much, and that is my whole God, job that God has given me, I can't come back and visit you as I would like. In other words, my desires are way on the list compared to God's desires. How many see that? With what he is saying, that's exactly what's coming out. He said, listen, it's not about me. It's about ministering as God has called me to do. That takes care of all the stuff I want to do. I don't have time for what I want to do. I praise the Lord that I was able to, two weeks ago, sit in a demon class, not demon a, a seminary higher education class, maybe that's helpful, on advanced expository preaching. By the way, expository preaching is the only preaching that should be done. Otherwise, you'll miss so much. And you will literally, whoever is making out what you're going to preach on next, he will purposely never preach certain passages. When you're expository preaching, you don't have a choice. And therefore, you're going to struggle through some of these difficult issues. And by the way, those are the things that make us humble. But reality is, uh, Sam Horn, who was the president of Master's, Seminary, or Master's College, he was, I was able to senator his teaching on the wisdom books of the Old Testament. <laughs> How many have heard lots of messages about the wisdom books in the Old Testament? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Good for you. It's hard to preach. It's not a narrative. It's not a, it's not a, 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 um, a principal letter written to the church. It's very difficult to preach. And after, after he blew us away, which I'd never heard in 30 years of my life, of how to preach wisdom literature, he said this, he said, man, I want to talk to you about one more thing. I have a bag of golf clubs in my closet that I never, hardly ever use. Because that's where our hobbies are to be. What was he saying? He was admonishing this group of preachers. Guys, you're too involved in your own hobbies. And it's distracting you from the Word of God. And he's right. I've been in churches where the pastor every single morning gets up and golfs. I'm not kidding you. I've been in a church where the church people come to me and say, oh, I know where the pastor is. It's deer hunting time, so he's not going to be around for the next three months. That is, should never be said about any minister, which means you and me too. Our job is to minister. Now, is there anything wrong with fishing and hunting? Uh, 
clothes shopping. I, I don't even know what girls do. But <laughs> I, I don't know those things. Or quilt making. or Nothing wrong with those things. Oh, they hunt and fish too. Amen. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with those things. But there is when they take the place of ministering to others. When I was in a church in Wisconsin for 10 years as a youth pastor, it's kind of hard to have that pastor be my real pastor, right? My boss. So I, I reached out to a pastor, a dear friend of mine, loved him to death. Sunday night after church, I would get out and we would fish Sunday night, Monday morning, and he became my pastor, someone I could talk to and be encouraged by. He jokingly, but yet tongue-in-cheek, said it this way, and I will never forget this. He said, Tim, there are guys out here in the ministry who call their boat calling. Or what? Visitation. His, their boats are called visitation. And so then they would get a call, guess what they could say? I'm out on visitation. That's not only bad, I would call that satanic. None of us are exempt from those things. It's not just pastors who deal with this issue. Our entire lives are to be devoted to God in ministering, serving others, serving God by serving others. Now, can you go out on a boat and minister to somebody? Absolutely, that's possible. By the way, some of the best opportunities I had to share the gospel is when we can't see land on either side and they're scared they're going to die. Let me tell you about a man named Jesus. And you don't walk on water, so you're stuck. Regardless, those hobbies can be ministerial hobbies. But let me ask you, what was Paul's hobby? When did he talk about his hobby? We don't even know exactly how he worked physical labor. We know he did, but we don't know what he did. The only thing we know is what? Tent maker. So we can get ideas, but we don't know for sure. Our job is to, our whole life, everybody in here are called to be ministers, not known as hobbyists. Does that make sense? I pray we can learn a lot from Paul. We're boasting in Christ. We're ministering day and night. And no circumstance will thwart us from fulfilling the ministry God has given us. Because that's exactly what Paul did. Amen. We should be more like Paul. Ministering becomes us. Ministering is what we're known for. I had a great I'll leave you with one last illustration. This week, as I was working with the cabinets, I got a call. And this man, that I talked to him once or twice a week. He said, Tim, I hope you don't mind this, but I'd like to talk theology with you. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah. Bring it on. Yes, that's what I want to talk about. He said, I believe that a person is saved by grace through faith. By putting their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Amen, amen, amen. That's what the Bible says. Romans 10, 9, and 10. And, and I gave him a bunch of verses that show that. And the reason he was asking was his uncle had just passed away. And he was going to go to the funeral. And I, told, I left him with this. You know what? You just, showed, you just told me how God saves people. Now you have been called to minister to your family that has just lost a loved one of how they too can come to know the Lord. And they too can have a relationship with Him. 
Amen? That should be our focus. Is it? I don't know. Now, I understand it's snowing outside, and I praise the Lord that you guys came here. Thank you so much for coming today. I pray that God's Word impacts your life in this text. But remember, we are in this together. We're a royal priesthood serving the Lord to the world. And we boast in His work, not in our strength. And we focus on His work, not on our hobbies. And no matter what circumstance comes in our lives, we'll strive to finish the job God has called us to do. It's exactly what it's saying here in this text. I pray that we will be ministers as Paul was in everything we do and say. Mr. Gaiman, can you close us in a word of prayer? Please stand. I will dismiss us in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the great example of Paul. And I pray that we would leave this place with new resolve to apply what we've learned today. And thank you for the detail of scripture that tells us how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.